It's very sweet to be here this morning, and I have been thinking for a while about what I was going to say today, and I thought I would talk about, um, wanted to say some things about delusion. My group in Davis has been working with the notion of delusion for a while. But of course, as with the nature of the subject, I wasn't quite sure how to start. <laughs> I was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I was spending some time this weekend with someone who was complaining about, complaining about people on Mount Tam. She'd been walking on Mount Tam, and it was a particularly glorious day, and people were jogging by with the earbuds in. And, of course, the assumption was, you know, the, the complaint was that uh, these were people who were not enjoying this glorious day. They were locked up in their earbuds and, right, isn't that the normal? Wouldn't that be the normal complaint? I mean, it's beautiful. And here they are. Of course, it's good for your body. You know, it's very helpful to, to be doing that, but you're missing. And I thought, well, you know, really, we're all doing that. You know? I, I drove from Davis to here and I sort of missed Vacaville. <laughs> okay, I missed Fairfield too, Benicia. <laughs> Lost in N NPR land, what Jack calls the Duca channel. You know? <laughs> um, you know, we... <laughs> I, I thought this is really, a, a, you know, in a way it's a metaphor for, well, how do we spend our life, you know, absorbed in our projects and our plans and our ambitions, is how different is it from earphones on, earbuds on Mount Tam, you know, a, a somewhat broader scope, but the same kind of thing. We, we are obsessed with what's coming next, with our worries and, and regrets, and we're, you know, the day is glorious or not. Even, even a lousy day could be glorious. I mean, how many truly lousy days do you get? But I, was, but I was thinking of this in terms of delusion, because I think often we think of delusion, and in, in Pali, the word moha is translated as delusion, and it goes with greed, hatred, and delusion. And the word avija is translated as ignorance, and it goes with the chain of dependent origination. But really the terms are referring to the same, the same thing. Um, and often we think of delusion as just sort of not knowing something. We, we, we don't get it right. We've, we've got a, uh, an understanding that doesn't accord with the way things are. Delusion, that's pretty much the dictionary definition. And then that leads to the sense that if, there was, if you just knew what it is, then everything would be fine. You know, that one, that one bit of one bit of knowledge, that one bit of insight. You know, in a, in a sense, th there's no way possible for us to know how things are. 
I mean, how many of us before yesterday knew about gravity waves? How many today know about gravity waves? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, it was on it was on NBC and PBS. It was it was big. It was on the front page of the Huffington Post. I don't know whether Drudge covered it. <laughs> Too much science. Oh well, it was a it was a uh, um, uh, you know an astrophysicist's discovery of a particular uh, phenomena that occurred within the first trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the bang, and it, it was a uh, a very rapid expansion incredibly rapid expansion, unbelievably, almost hard to, instantaneous, that set things in motion. And it, it, was, it was measured. If, and all of a sudden, gravity waves. Who knew? You know? um, well, if you don't have a concept for something, is it possible that the thing even exists? Black holes, did they exist a hundred years ago? Well, who knows? You know, um, but the idea is that somehow we don't know something. Talk, ignorance is sometimes translated as ignorance. You know, we're not looking at the stuff we should be looking at. You know, we sort of know about it, but we're not really looking at it. You know, it's the, uh, you know, when, when you talk with people who are running hospice operations, they say, well, the purpose is to provide the highest quality of life for the time uh, the, the clients have left. And I thought, well, I think, you know, we're all in hospice. <laughs> you know, we don't want to think it that way, so we think ignorance. We're just not paying attention. But I think there's something more active going on, that ignorance isn't passive, it isn't just that we don't know or sort of distract ourselves. I think in a way, and, and it, there's also this some kind of a sense, it's fogginess, confusion. Sometimes it's taught as, it's, it's talked about as if it's just confusion, just not knowing things. Um, but I think it's it's more active than that. Any of you see uh, American Hustle? Just really fun, really really fun. And this the script was online. I don't know whether it still is. I went and tracked it down and um, found this. This is Irving Rosenfeld, who's the con man in in the whole thing. And. Um, this was a voiceover section early on in the movie. He says, as far as I could see, people were always conning each other to get what they wanted. We even con ourselves. We talk ourselves into things, you know. We sell ourselves things maybe we don't need or even want, you know, by dressing them up. We leave out the risk. We leave out the ugly truth. I think conning ourselves, in a way is something we do, although not intentionally as, as a con. Greed, hatred, and delusion are the three basic fires. They're often described as poisons. That's a later, a later rendition of, of these phenomena. Greed, wanting, 
hatred or aversion. And delusion doesn't seem to go with the other, but I think they're all, in a way, impulses. They're all things we do, and they're all strategies that we adopt for dealing with life as we find it. Um, greed, you know, the, the moth and the flame is a real nice metaphor for greed. The flame is bright for the moth. He sees the flame. Nothing else, everything else is dark. And he flies right into it. Just like us with an object of desire. We don't see the consequences. We don't see the ugly truth. Um, what the moth is missing, of course, is his own compulsion to fly into the flame, the desire, the wanting to fly into the flame, the wanting the flame. Um, and this, of course, is what mindfulness practice hopefully enables us to start to see, is that aspect of ourselves. Aversion the same way, or hatred the same way, the object, make it go away. And we focus on the object and don't see <clears throat> the impulse behind it. You can see a little more clearly, if you think of, uh, you know, I spend um, a lot of time driving, and traffic jams, you know, after a while doesn't bother me, but traffic jams often are frustrating. Anybody find traffic jams frustrating? You know? Well, what is it that makes a traffic jam unpleasant? It's our own impulse in, in relationship to it. It's like the moth and, and the flame. The flame is just the flame. The moth flies into it. The traffic jam, just a bunch of cars. But it's our own, our own compulsion, our own impulses, our own needs, wants. Sometimes... I remember Ajahn Pasano being asked, how do you know, how could you know when you're deluded? And his response was, well, if you're suffering, you're deluded. Which I thought was helpful, but not entirely, because how do we know when we're suffering? It's sort of that, was it Terry Southern wrote that book 50 years ago? Been down so long, it looks like up to me. (laughs) Uh, Richard, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard Freina, and and so we we don't often know. How do we know when when we're suffering? I I I thought about uh, some sort of objective markers for dukkha, and one that just came up for me was uh, complaint. If you have a complaint, there's there's dukkha. There's there's dissatisfaction. Well. Yes, it's a complaint. But the world is the way it is. Things are the way they are. The traffic is the way it is, and the flame is the way it is, and you know, our relationship to it. If it's if there's a complaint, whether the complaint is justified or not, just the dissatisfaction with with the way things are. Um, and I think that that being dissatisfied with the way things are, it's not, un, 
it's, I think it's part of our inheritance for the past couple of weeks. I've, I've been using um, metaphor of evolutionary <coughs> biology to, to talk about some of the Buddha's insights to help clarify some of them. And I don't think that's out of line. I mean, at the, in the Buddhist time, they used reincarnation and karma and those things to try to clarify teachings. I think evolutionary biology works pretty well. And here we are as organisms that have been cultured over, I don't know how long life has been on this planet. Every cell in our body wants to survive. Every cell wants to reproduce. Is it any surprise that those impulses are so strong and so compelling? I think I may have talked about Tom Wolfe's book, uh, I, am Sh- I Am Charlotte Simmons. It's another one of those <laughs> books that's, you know, three inches thick. Um, and he, he uh, it's a story about a young woman from the mountains who winds up at Duke University. They, they didn't call it Duke. I can't remember what they call it, but it sort of was Duke. And, you know, he walks her, he, he, we walk with her through her life in college, and we walk with her into a neuroscience class. And the professor is giving a talk about us. <laughs> and he says, it's sort of like you take a, a pebble or a rock and you throw it across the room, and it becomes conscious in mid-flight. And it says, oh, I want to go across the room. Our body shows up. I mean, life showed up for us. Unless one of you guys was in on the planning, and if you were, I want to talk to you. (laughs) But it just shows up. And identification happens. It's us. You know, when hunger arises, blood, you know, we know blood sugar drops, and, and we say, I'm hungry. We add the I in there. Identification happens with when the hormones kick in. We identify with all those impulses. You know, hunger, anger. Identification happens. Survival. We want to survive. And we want it pleasant. Because pleasant experience is more likely, or is less likely to be damaging. And over the five or seven thousand generations of humans, and however many generations before that, these tendencies are really built in. They they come along, and um, we talked about tanha, I think, last week or the week before. You know, the desire, for, the desire for, it's, just, it's translated as the desire for pleasant experience, but it's an underlying preference. It's an ongoing need. We don't, at some point, say, let's make things a mess. <laughs> you know, we're always, always looking for a way to make things more pleasant, less unpleasant, and to figure out how all this relates to me, which is all survival-based. It's all, it seems to me, embedded... Um, I think that 
delusion in the sense or ignorance is something that we do. It's something that we do that helps us deal with the uncertainty that comes with life. We sort of, it's, it's, if we were really, if we had no idea what, what was going on at this moment, that we were in a room, you know, that there's a Dharma class going on, there's been some, we, you know, how are we oriented to the world? How are we oriented to our experience? And I think the orientation to this experience that is part of, wow, we've got this huge processor, right? This incredible processor. And I, I think of it sort of as a, uh, the metaphor that I've been using recently is that of a GPS. Everybody use GPS? You know how it works? Anybody not know how GPS? I mean, I don't mean the electronics and the satellites and all that, but, you know, you get the little thing that says how to get there. There's <laughs> an old Sam Levinson joke, you know, he overheard two women talking at an airport about, we went to Mallorca last year for a vacation. It was wonderful. The other one says, well, where's that? first one says, I don't know, we flew. <laughs> so, <laughs> Where are you? I don't know. I just it said turn left. I follow my GPS. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think the GPS is a, is a really great model for, a metaphor for um, the way... We find ourselves in the world. We have this map of the world. We've got this map. Right? We've got this set of concepts. Two days ago it didn't include gravity waves. Now it's got gravity waves. You know, 100 years ago it didn't have black holes. It didn't even have an expanding universe. You know, 500 years ago it had the, earth, or the sun going around the earth. So we have this map, whatever it's like, and we've got the blue dot on it. The blue dot is really essential, because otherwise you've just got a map. How do you make use of that map? Well, we have a self. We, we have a self. Self happens. <laughs> Let's just say self happens. Self appears. The perceptions appear. The understandings appear the views uh, appear, and we see what we're looking for. What's on the GPS thing on our, on our dashboard of our car? Streets, right? I mean, that's what we're looking for when we're driving, streets. You know, it doesn't necessarily have, uh, you know, doesn't show you voter registration of the areas you're in. It's not what's particularly interesting then. Or, you know, ambient temperatures, you know, average rainfall, all kinds of information that's just not on that map. Same with our understanding. And we don't see, and, and we don't see, we see what we're looking for. There's a, there's a great study, um, you know, you can, some of you may be familiar with it, um, but a bunch of people 
think they were mostly students in a room, and, and going to show them a, a movie. And it's a movie of a basketball game, and you know the, you know the, yeah. And they and and they're 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 asked to count the number of times the ball is passed from one player to the next. In the course of this, I don't know, minute, two minute long movie, and while they're playing basketball, somebody, probably a guy, but who knows, because he's dressed in a gorilla suit. Right? And he runs out on the court and runs around and, and off the court. And afterwards, when the, the uh, experimenter asks, almost nobody saw the gorilla. Because we were focusing on the, on, on, on the task at hand. And I think in a way... That's how delusion works. But it's it's also more insidious. There's my favorite uh, Indian aphorism, which there have been times when it shows up in every Dharma talk I give, which can be just way too often. But it goes, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. You've heard that before. Um, it's not like, and, and it's, so it's hard to say to the pickpocket, you're deluded, because he's going to turn around and say, are there pockets there or what? <laughs> there are pockets, right? What's the delusion? Pockets. You know? And we can all point to the things that, you know, that we're, how, what do you, how can you say delusion? Well, you know. We create this world conceptually in our mind. We have a location for ourselves in it so we know how to navigate, because that map on the dashboard wouldn't be much use if you didn't have a little blue dot on it. How do you get from here to there? Well, you have to know where here is. Where is here? It's me. Which is a, a, and me just happens. One of the things neuroscientists are pretty clear about, and this actually is, is straying a little bit, but it's, but it's this business with the pebble, that intention happens before we, come, we become aware that it's happened. So a choice gets made, and then we become aware that the choice is made. And then we identify with it, or identification happens. I want to f- go across the room, like the pebble. You know, I'm hungry. The, you know, the organism has already shifted into hunger, and, and we, oh, I'm hungry. Yeah. Hmm. So it's, you know wearing the headphones, the earbuds on Mount Tam, missing Vacaville, what's going on? It's where we're paying our, where we're paying attention. Um, Wittgenstein says, language presents us with a picture and the picture holds us captive. There's a story about, uh, a Japanese Zen story about uh, a painter, an artist, who paints a picture of a tiger on a wall. 
and he paints in just incredible detail and he's right up on the thing and he's painting in just every little hair on the tigers and he steps back and oh my gosh, it's a tiger and he drops dead of a heart attack. (laughs) Well, have we ever done that? You're sitting there, your knee starts to hurt while you're meditating. You go, oh, am I going to be able to get up when I'm done with this? Maybe I'll be crippled forever like that woman I sat next to on, who couldn't get up after, you know. <laughs> so we respond to our, our stories. Oh, in a way, the map itself, it's useful. It's really important. We can't can't live with it, can't live without it. (laughs) Um, There's no way for for the map to match the terrain that it's mapping. For, For one reason, our language is full of nouns. And in this existence, there don't seem to be any things, except conceptually, because everything is in process. Everything is changing. Some things change more slowly than others. So, you know, and the things that change more slowly than us seem permanent to us. I seem permanent to my dog. I've always been there, (laughs) you know. Um, so far, the sun rising, always been there since I've been around. But, you know, we all know that it may, it, it's not permanent. It's not forever. There are no things. There's just process, everything embedded in everything. D- delusion is a strategy. For not, for for addressing the uncertainty that comes from all of this, because there is no, there is no place to rest, and yet that's terrifying, and so we, you know, over however many years we've been around, we've built a conceptual model of the way things are. This is the Buddha. Him I call deluded, who has not abandoned the taints that defile, that bring renewal of being, that give trouble, ripen in suffering, and lead to future birth, aging, and death. For it is with the non-abandoning of the taints that one is deluded. He's relating it to, to the defilements. Him I call undiluted, who has abandoned the taints that defile, that bring renewal of being, that give trouble, ripen in suffering, and lead to future birth, aging, and death. For it is with the abandoning of the taints that one becomes undiluted. The Tathagata, which is the word that he used to describe himself, the Tathagata has abandoned the taints. He's cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them, so that they no longer are, are subject to future arising. Just as the palm tree is, whose crown is cut off is incapable of further growth, so too the Tathagata has abandoned the taints that defile. 
That puts that in the realm of the four noble truths. The abandonment of tanha. Tanha is what is to be abandoned, right? The four truths. The first one is the truth of, of dukkha, of suffering. The second is the origin, which is tanha, translated as craving, but it's that impulse. It's the impulse for survival, continued being, to become in the future, to be something, to be, certainly, and that should be pleasant. These are built into us, I think. The abandonment of the defilements. The Buddha talks about the uh, vipalasas, which are the distortions of perception. And the distortions of perception are not surprising, some of them anyway, there are four of them. First is to see permanence in what is impermanent. I'm going to say, well, for all practical purposes. We've known, I mean, that things are not permanent since Heraclitus. Was it Heraclitus who said you can't step in the same river twice? You know, and Robert Rauschenberg who said you can't look at my paintings twice? You know, and he didn't mean that the chemical composition of the paintings had changed so much. But the next time you saw it, you're not the same. You can't look at my paintings twice. Everything constantly constantly changing, to see, the, to see permanence, to see the possibility of satisfaction in something that is inherently incapable of being satisfying. And wouldn't it be nice if, I mean, <laughs> if, if only then I would be happy, if only X. And it's, you know, and we sort of know But really, it's not going to last, you know, getting that Porsche is not going to be last, lasting happiness for us. But, you know, it's almost not so much that we think we, we need it to be happy. We can't imagine being happy without it, whatever it is, the job, the partner, the health, the whatever. If everything worked out, if everything got lined up the way you wanted, it was just perfect, it would be all downhill from there. (laughs) If you got things worked out, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) There's nothing but mad news after that. Because of change, you know. So perceiving the inherently, and to to perceive what has no substance as substantial. This is the anatta part, the emptiness part. Um, Because everything is changing, there really aren't, and there really are no things. There's nothing, it's like trying to hold on to something to, to depend on something. It's like trying to hold water that's flowing through your hands. It's just, maybe we'll talk about emptiness next week, I think. But the last is to mistake, to see beauty in the unbeautiful. And this 
is disturbing sometimes, but the idea is that things are as they are. <clears throat> and we see beauty, it's the, the cliche of beauty being in the eye of the beholder. Sugar is not really sweet, it's just a chemical sitting there. You know, sweetness happens in our neurology. It happens in our, in our organism. Beauty happens, it has to do with a relationship to things. And of course, when we see things as beautiful, we want them. We want them to continue. It's a distortion of perception to see in the thing the projection, or to see ugliness, the complaint. We have a complaint. So the, the, the map, the, the, the GPS um, map, is filled with the things that we're looking for. What we're looking for is, you know, pleasantness. We're looking for, for continuity and, and continued survival, becoming for some, something substantial, for some security, for some safety. We want, we want that, right? We want to be safe and in, in this uncertain... So some things we know are true. And really, we're, bo- we're born to want these things. We're born, Lady Gaga says, we're born this way, hey. So there's no moral failing here in when that arises. I spend a lot of time thinking, oh, I shouldn't be craving. That's the cause of suffering. That's the second... Didn't been through that one? You know, the second truth is the cause of suffering is craving, desire. Oh, I shouldn't be desire, shouldn't I? What I? But it's, there's no moral failing there. It's the, it's the impulse, it's the reactivity. It's the response. And, and you know, that response is going to happen. The, the Buddha uses the word abandon. He doesn't say, you know, he says we abandon the taints. <clears throat> there are four of these that he, that he talked about. In, to, to, you know, in, with some, in, to some degree, he talked about you know, the underlying tendency for pleasant, the underlying tendency to become, the underlying tendency uh, to attach to views, to rely on views, to depend on views. That's pretty interesting. I mean, that's where delusion lives. And the underlying tendency to delusion. It's a tendency. What did you say number two was? To become, to survive. Bhavasava, bhavatanha. That's a taint? Mm-hmm. It's a, the, the, the four, these are, it's, the word is trans-asava, it's translated in a bunch of different ways. Taints, cankers, defilements, literally effluence. The Buddha's vision was that we are, 
leaking all these things out all over the world. And, you know. and, and the third truth, by the way, the word Naroda means to stop leaking. <laughs> the cessation of suffering is the end of leaking. <laughs> we stop leaking greed, hatred, and delusion all over the place. <laughs> The notion that the notion that uh, we can get something pleasant will make us happy. That's certainly that's how we navigate. We try to make things pleasant. How's that working? You know, we keep working at it. We depend on our understanding, and we tend to think of the understanding that we have as the way things are. Oh, I read the quote somewhere. I'm trying to remember who it was. We're never so adamant about being right as when we are unsure. (laughs) And when we're making things up, when our views are metaphysical, if you think God is blue, you can get into a real argument with someone who thinks God is red. And, you know, who's going to, who's going to, um, ar- who's, who's going to arbitrate that? Meaning. We want meaning. You know, something, something to give meaning. Something to cling to. Something to hold on to. Something to con ourselves with. But coming up with meaning, coming up with the map, you know, is a strategy. And it's a strategy that we kind of depend on. It's not like we can do without it. You know? On the other hand, it doesn't necessarily leave us at peace our ideas about how things should be, our assessments about what what will make things better. John Cage once, uh, I don't think he actually wrote this book. I, I took a class from him once, and I think he said it in the class. He said he had an idea for a book that he was going to, he was a composer last century, and um, he had an idea for um, a book titled How to Improve the World you'll only make matters worse. (laughs) We have our ideas about what will make things better, what will make things worse, how things should be. People should listen to each other, shouldn't they? Shouldn't they? Well, they should. Of course, when they don't, then what happens when we think they should? Well, then we get cranky. You're not listening. Well, what a surprise. (laughs) Not listening to each other. Oh, my gosh. Just discovered that. (laughs) Judgments, ideas about how things should be. And we have those ideas. Things would be better if, if. And we have those ideas, then then we suffer.
and seeing all of this stuff with an eye towards how it affects me, what's at stake here. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, we spend our time trying to maximize pleasant experience, minimize unpleasant experience, and figure out how all this relates to me. It's not a moral failing. It's, we were born this way. Hey, <laughs> I like the hey part. <laughs> I always wait for that at the end of the song. <laughs> So it's, it's, not, it's not a moral failing to be concerned with how this affects me. The Buddha says he's abandoned that. He's abandoned those tendencies to need security, to want security. Remember that, that passage I read last week from the Sutta Napata where he said, I looked and looked for some place to rest someplace safe and couldn't find any place that was stable anywhere. Our tendency to rely on our views, on our understanding, and particularly when that, like I say, when those views are um, metaphysical, when they're about how things actually are, we can only know our own experience. We can know about, you know, infrared and gamma rays and radiation that we can't perceive. We can know about them through some very um, complex conceptual constructions and measurements. They knew that uh, they knew to look for Pluto because I think the orbit of Neptune was not the way it was supposed to be. So they went to look for it. We didn't even know it was there. There's lots we don't know is there. And yet we think we have an idea of how things are. My gosh, we hardly have any. It's, it's mostly dark. You know, our sensorium is so limited. Hmm. The Buddha says, I do not say that one gains liberation. Where is the quote? I do not say that one attains purification by view, by understanding, by tradition, knowledge, virtue, or ritual nor is it attained without those things. That's pretty interesting. It's only taking these factors as the means and not grasping at them as ends. So these are pointing, they're pointing at our experience, pointing at that impulse that arises almost before it's conceptualized. I was making a left turn out of the freeway entrance this morning, and the guy in front of me was asleep at the wheel. The light turned, and I sat there, and I thought, when do I honk? (laughs) (laughs) Finally, I honked, and he 
came to and he zipped, you know, the eight cars head and I got there just as the light turned. And the frustration I felt, it was physical. And then I, in my mind, you dummy. I was just, I was, I, I was just remarked on that as I, as it showed up in my mind. Just to label my own suffering as his fault. <clears throat> so if we can come up with a map of that process, then we can see it more clearly, like gravity waves. So the Buddha's, the Buddha's teachings are very helpful because they, they help us they point our attention to aspects of our experience that we usually don't uh, don't notice. <clears throat> so we're left with this understanding that we've got. How are things? It's got political dimensions, social, environmental dimensions. And each one of these ideas we have, we have a reaction to. They make us angry or happy or, you know, our friend in hospice makes us sad. Uh, A young person who's getting an opportunity makes us happy. We have these reactions. It's it's not that we shouldn't be feeling those things. Those things happen on their own. It's the pebble across the room. Here we, you know, the anger with this guy in the, in, in the car in front of me <clears throat> happened before I knew it and the labeling came, came after. But to be deluded is to reify our map, to assume that our map really is the territory or a lot of the territory. We use the map. The maps are very helpful. Our conceptual understandings have made us very successful as a species. And knowing the way to get home is really useful. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's not... It's almost... A, it's the question of how do we hold these things? How do we hold these understandings? Um, It's the can't live with them, can't live without them. I guess the the um, the Buddha's the Buddha's teaching uh, of anatta, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this next week because I just don't have time to go go for it right now. But the but the idea of emptiness um, to see it to see things as to see our assumptions, our, per, our perceptions, as they are, just as perceptions. To use them, but, but also to recognize that they are perceptions, that they are just our understanding. And that... Mm-hmm. Dogen, who is the Japanese founder of the Soto Zen tradition, says that enlightenment 
To be enlightened is to be enlightened about delusion. To be deluded is simply to be deluded about enlightenment. (laughs) Not to know what it means. Mm. To think that enlightenment is some thing. When I get enlightened, well then everything will be just fine. You know, the Buddha had a bad back. He, you know, he had a he had a cousin who didn't like him, who tried to kill him, pushed a boulder down on him, crushed his foot. You know, had some pretty bad digestive problems at the end. You know, he wasn't without pain. He wasn't without <clears throat> without those things. I think I'll say this about emptiness, and then and then I'll I'll pause um, till next week. But I I spent some time with uh, Gay Watson over the weekend, and she was she did a, uh, a class on emptiness down at the at Gill Center in in uh, Redwood City. She said that one of the possible translations that Stephen Batchelor had been contemplating using for emptiness was transparency. And that really resonated with me because you see a pen, right? You say, what is this? It's a pen. But you know it's not a pen. You know the pen comes from my side. This is the label I apply to it. You know, in, in Zen, the guy holds up the stick. He says, what do you, what do you if you call this a stick, I'm going to hit you with it. You say, it's not a stick, I'm going to hit you with it. What is it? That's why we're all in the Theravadan tradition. (laughs) But the label is just the label. This is, to, to think of it as a pen is to see it as a snapshot of these molecules at this moment in time, to freeze things in time, to see the label as transparent, to be able to use it to see it, but not assume that really this is a pen. It's, it's not easy to do. Often it's hard to relate to something without its label. You know what I mean? It's not always easy. So I guess, you know, um, ignorance or delusion are not really things to be overcome by seeing what's really there. What's really there? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. Anicca dukkha anatta. That's what the Buddha said was really there. And when you move from there... um, we're moving into spe- speculation. Now let me uh, pause and, and uh, see if there are questions or thoughts or puzzlements or disagreements or... Any views out there? Anybody got, anybody got any views? 
please. Anatta is right. The word the word anatta actually means no atman. And at the time of the Buddha, <coughs> anat anatta. At the time of the Buddha, uh, in the in the ambient spiritual climate, Brahman was the spirit, the oneness, the unifying essence that permeates everything of which everything is a part. And the Atman would be the individual soul, uh, a unique personal thing. So Atman, uh, and the idea was Atman is Brahman, really, we are part of the oneness. And the Buddha said, Anatta, no Atman, no entity. So really he's talking about no entity. People say, people like the idea of no fixed self, but we'll settle for any kind of self, really. <laughs> as long, you know, because what we want is that security. We want the stability. You know? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's no self people, and then people are uneasy with that, so it's not self. Whatever you think of as yourself, it's not, not that, it's, is I think what it comes down to, yeah. Uh huh. And as they approach something, it's always new, and there's no. Uh huh. There's none of this structure that seems, and there's also very a lot of suffering going on. So I'm just thinking about that as I'm hearing about this emptiness. Mm hmm. Yeah, what makes things a mess? What makes the traffic jam unpleasant? What makes the pleasant things pleasant? What makes sugar sweet? It's, it's, it's not out there. <clears throat> it's in our, uh, in our relations, the, it's the, it's the... So what we're saying is that it is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Yes. It has no value. Ah. Well, there's a difference. It is what it is, and when, when you encounter someone who is suffering, mm-hmm. then the response would be compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, we can make judgments about it, mm-hmm. and we can anguish about it. But, and those, you know, when you, what does it mean to value something? Really, what does that mean? Well, when you encounter someone who's, who's anguishing, what you want to do is comfort them. I, I think, right? You know, a child is crying and you, are you okay? And, you know, I'm here. You, you just, um, so it's not that that, it isn't, I mean, value, I'm not sure what we're talking about. You know, when we use words in, in, Often they have such a wide variety of meanings. It's people use it one way and it means another. Cars love shell. What do we mean by love? You know. <laughs> so yeah, there's suffering. There sure is. It's the first truth. <laughs> <laughs> 
and and it comes with the territory. You know? And our 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 cultured being is to cult, overcome that by following, by by going with the flow. And the flow is tanha. Make it pleasant. Make it survive. Become. Make it substantial, make it last. Now what we do? Is that helpful? Yes. Yeah. Anything else? Any other? I think I may talk about uh, emptiness in more in more uh, in more detail. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something is something is wrong there? <laughs> what? More depth. More, uh, yeah, more depth. Yeah, it's, it's turtles all the way down. Yeah. Please. Um, going back to when he made the announcements and he said that the Dhamma translates as giving, uh-huh. there was a different word for giving. Yeah, chaga. C-A-G-G-A. And the C is spelled like the C-H? Yeah, chaga. It's a practice. Dana is a practice that cultivates generosity. And the generosity of the heart, the openness of the heart that comes when there's a feeling of fullness and enough, not needing, not being needy. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. The trick here is to just watch how we are and, and learn from that. So thank you guys for your attention. I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.